At one point or another in our careers, we've all been told to trust your gut. Our guest on this episode thinks that's the worst possible advice, and he has the research to back that up. Why isn't your gut reliable, and what should you do? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at ShiftShaperStrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at ShiftShaper Strategies, David Saltzman. We all make judgment decisions and judgment errors, and we probably do that a zillion times a day. Sometimes we're cognizant of it, sometimes we're not cognizant of it, but The advice, trust your gut, which we've all heard and we've all been told, especially those of us who've been in the business for a while, you know, you developed a gut and a good sixth sense, so trust your gut. We hear it all the time. And sometimes that doesn't lead to the best business decisions. In point of fact, it may not, except rarely lead to a good business decision. Someone who studied this extensively is behavioral economist and cognitive neuroscientist, Dr. Gleb Sapersky. He's the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Expert, and we're here to talk about his new book, which is called Never Go With Your Gut. We'll find out why. With that, welcome, Gleb. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to be on. I really appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. Our pleasure. So let's level set. How did the expression go with your gut get to be in the pantheon of bad business advice? In the same way that doctors advise to treat yourself with mercury and use leeches got to be in the pantheon of bad medical advice when they had no idea of what actually worked and what didn't. Gut reactions feel comfortable. That is what people tell you to do. Do what's comfortable for you. And we all want to do what's comfortable for us. You know, if doctors were telling you to eat a dozen donuts and, you know, slouch and on your couch and watch Netflix all day, you'd probably decide to change that doctor and actually get one who has some medical training and isn't just telling you to do what they think you would like you would pay them to hear unfortunately we are at the stage of advice in business where we were in medicine a hundred years ago when doctors were selling snake oil mixed with cocaine alcohol and sugar You know, wow. you remember what Coca-Cola used to make, used to be made out of, right? So exactly. that is the stuff that people have been feeding you your whole life because we don't have evidence-based business. We've only developed evidence-based medicine in the last hundred years. We studied these topics for the last hundred years. We have not been studying business for the last hundred years, how our brain works in judgment and decision making. If you get an MBA, you will not 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 have any advice on making good decisions. You'll have macroeconomics, microeconomics, and so on. Not on decision-making. There are no classes in MBA programs on decision-making because it's not actually a scholarship. is not there yet. The scholarship is just getting published on how do we make 
good decisions and how do we avoid bad decisions. So that's what I'm working on. How do I am the cognitive neuroscientist. I'm on the cutting edge of how do you actually spread this information to a broad audience. And that's what I do. But I mean, we make a zillion decisions a day and generally we seem to get stuff right in our regular lives as opposed to our business lives. Why don't those authentic selves, as you call them in the book, fit with today's business world? I'm going to challenge you, David, on getting decisions right in everyday life. If you look at the rate of divorces in our society, it's about 40%. That indicates that people are not getting their decisions right in everyday life. I mean, how many conflicts do you you know, listeners have with your spouse or friends or someone that you later regret? How many decisions do you make to eat that third chocolate chip cookie, which you wish you wouldn't have made the next day? We make terrible decisions in our lives all the time. Decisions that we later regret, we look back and say, oh, I should not have done that. I should not have said that and so on. Looking at our business, we make terrible decisions all the time too. The Small Business Administration has been tracking the failure rate and success rate of small businesses over the last 50 years or so. It found consistently over these last 50 years that small businesses fail within the first five years of starting up at a rate of about 50%, and within the first 10 years, about two-thirds, so 66% or so, fail of all small businesses fail within the first decade. They have not improved, <laughs> and they have all been given the advice, go with their gut. That's why they're failing. They're making terrible decisions. Go with their gut, and they fail. So we make bad decisions in our everyday life too, David. <laughs> Well, we have some tools that we use frequently in business. One of them that I think most of our listeners are probably familiar with is the SWOT analysis. Doesn't that help you make better decisions? The SWOT analysis is unfortunately really flawed. We think it helps us make better decisions, but it feeds into some of our biases that cause us to make really bad decisions. And cognitive biases, that's what area of my expertise, are the dangerous judgment errors that we make because of how our brain is wired. So that's the cognitive biases. That's what you have to avoid and address in order to make good decisions. With a SWOT analysis, the most dangerous ones are optimism and overconfidence. So salespeople, leaders, people at the top of the organization, people who go out and sell things, marketers, tend to be very, very, very optimistic. And they kind of need to be in order to motivate themselves and go forward. But when they do a SWOT analysis, and they tend to be very overconfident about their products, their companies, and so on, that helps them get to the top of the company in terms of you know having a good impression of the company or being a salesman, a saleswoman, making sales to other people. However... That doesn't mean that they need to apply these same techniques of overconfidence and over excessive optimism to their own decision-making. When they do SWOT analysis, what I've seen over time and time and time and time and time again, the, the SWOT analysis involves listing your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and threats. And the people who are optimistic and overconfident, salespeople, CEOs, and so on, tend to list way too many strengths, way too many opportunities, not nearly enough weaknesses, not nearly enough threats. And then they go ahead with their strategic plan based with their planning based on this very bad listing of excessive strengths and opportunities, not nearly enough weaknesses and threats. And then they screw up as a result of it. They make plans that are way too optimistic and cause themselves a lot of problems 
going forward. So what they need to do is, of course, adjust for this over-optimism, adjust for this overconfidence, list many more weaknesses than feel comfortable to them, go outside of their comfort zone, look at their weaknesses, acknowledge them, go outside of their comfort zone, look at the risks, acknowledge them, and decrease their expectations for opportunities and for strengths. Is that what you refer to in the book as a biased blind spot? Yes, exactly. So folks who think that they are not biased tend to be very, very biased because they're arrogant, they're overconfident, they think that they know everything. The older you are in the business, the less likely you are actually to get professional development. However, it's the people who are older in the business who tend to be more set in their ways, who deal worst with change. When change happens, they're unable to adapt to it, and then they fail because they can't adapt to it. And of course, our future, the world is increasingly disrupted. It's changing more and more and more. So they are failing at a higher and higher rate right now. And this is a big problem going forward. It will be an even worse rate of failure because our world is changing even faster. Can you ever de-bias? And if you can, how do you do that? What's that process? The critical thing in debiasing, which is the practice of addressing dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases, is to develop healthy mental habits. So right now, a lot of the mental habits we have are unhealthy. Excessive optimism is a big problem. And I'm telling you this as someone who is excessively optimistic. That's one of the biases that I am most prone to, to be honest. I tend to be very optimistic. You know, I look at the future and it intuitively feels to me that the grass is green on the other side of the hill. Everything is going to be great. Things will turn out wonderfully. Well, unfortunately, the reality is that the grass is often yellow on the other side of the hill. So it's not nearly as nice as I think it is. So what I have learned when I started studying this stuff and went into academia to study cognitive biases, I learned that this problem, which I had my whole life previous to that, is actually a specific systemic pattern that a lot of humans experience. And there are specific techniques to address it. So for this, for the optimism bias, what I need to do is have a probabilistic thinking approach to reality, not a black and white approach to reality, which is the, what the vast majority of us have. We think either something will succeed or it won't. Either something will be good or it won't. Either we'll get that client or it won't. The appropriate, much more effective way to think about this stuff is to apply the technique of probabilistic thinking, where we evaluate the probability of something occurring. So let's say we estimate that we will make that sale. Seven, uh, I have an 80% estimate that I will make the sale. So you make a prediction right now that I have an 80% estimate of making the sale. And you see how often you actually make the sale. And, you know, for me, so I run a small business called Disaster Avoidance Experts, which is a training, consulting, coaching company and decision making. I found that I tend to be optimistic at a rate of about well, 30 to 50%. So an average of 40. So that means if I think a sale will happen, it will happen actually less often, about 40% less often than I think it will. (laughs) Therefore, I calibrate. I adjust my expectations for sales, for marketing, for success of various things by 40%. So that's one technique. You address, you predict it, you figure out your own vulnerabilities, and you calibrate for them. You specifically calibrate for them using this probabilistic thinking method. Now, the other technique I use, which I use for especially important projects, because it's kind of hard to trust your own calibration for especially important projects, and for ones that are different, unique than other things I've done before, 
is I get an outside perspective. I get somebody who is pessimistic to tell me what they think about the project. Now, pessimism bias is the opposite of optimism bias. These are people who think the grass is yellow on the other side of the hill when it's actually green on the other side of the hill. They tend to be risk averse, too risk averse. They tend to think that there are too many strengths and too many weaknesses. You'll tend to find folks like this in the legal profession, in HR. You won't find many of them at all in sales or in CEO positions. So what you need to do is get their feedback. And what I do is get their feedback, get their perspective on my projects and plans. And it doesn't mean I've listened to them fully, but it means that, hey, now I can, what that they told me that this is a weakness, this is a problem, this is a threat. I can recognize that this is a weakness, problem, threat, and I can work, collaborate with them or by myself to address this situation going forward. So that's a specific way that you would address a specific cognitive bias. And of course, my book talks about the 30 most dangerous cognitive biases for business leaders, salespeople, so on, and talks about how do you address them effectively going forward with the kind of methods that I've just described for this one specific optimism bias. And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion. Now, I know that you said that some of this study is new. Are there any objective, measurable tools that are available to individuals to use? Or is it just keyed in, as, as you've been discussing so far, on being more aware of your own limitations and finding people who can who are complementary that can give you the other side of the coin? Yes, of course, there are measurements, objective measurements. So we've been evaluating the likelihood of failure and success. For example, I'll give you an interesting statistic. Of mergers and acquisitions, which is one of the biggest, biggest, biggest decisions that a company can make, mergers and acquisitions fail at a rate of about 80%. They fail at a rate of about 80%, even though leaders are so more and more mergers and acquisitions are happening right now, even though they fail so miserably, <laughs> unfortunately. So we know that they fail at that rate. And people continue to make them because they tend to be overconfident about themselves and they tend to ignore the likelihood of failure. They tend to think that they're better than all the other people who did mergers and acquisitions. So this is a specific concrete statistic where you can look at merchants and acquisitions and you need to be much more skeptical than you will succeed, just like you need to be much more skeptical than you will succeed when you start a small business because they fail at such a high rate than you would be intuitively. You feel like your business succeeds will succeed. You feel like your merger or acquisition would succeed, but it often won't. So that's kind of one statistic where we actually can measure outcomes for companies, 
we can measure what happens for uh, folks. So that's one aspect of things. <laughs> there was a study of 1,087 board members which uh, fired their chief executive officers. And we looked at, asked them why they fired them. What were the, the reasons? One of the top five reasons was denialism, where these leaders were completely denying negative reality about what was happening outside their company and inside their company. It's not that the leaders who were taking charge of a negative situation and addressing it, it's that they were completely denying it, you know, just like the Boeing leadership denied that so there was a problem with the 737 MAX after the first crash, which was obviously bad. So those kind of statistics we can see on individuals, statistics we can see on company levels, and you can also learn about yourself. So there is an assessment in the book, in the chapter seven of the book, which actually looks at dangerous judgment errors in the workplace. That's the name of the assessment. And it looks at specific behaviors which are associated with problems. So for example, the first question is, how often in the past year, what's the percentage rate in the past year of situations where your projects ran over time or over budget? And you learn through that about the cognitive bias of the planning fallacy, where we make plans that we think will tend to come out well, and they don't. We tend to be way too optimistic about our plans. And through using that assessment, you can actually see what kind of cognitive biases you are most prone to, like I am most prone to the optimism bias. And the assessment also gives you next steps for addressing them going forward. We'll be sure to link to the book in the show notes on the show website so that folks can get it easily. But a lot of folks who are listeners of this podcast are involved in one way or another in sales or supportive salespeople and whatnot. What are some questions that they can ask themselves to avoid decision disasters as they go through their process? There are two things that they can do. One is for everyday decisions that they don't want to screw up. These are not decisions that you want to maximize, that you want to make sure to get really right in order to squeeze the maximum value out of them. There's a small, short technique that takes you a couple of minutes. You can use it before any sale or an important email to a client or anything like that. There's another eight-step technique that you want to use for a more serious project, more serious sale. You know, this is something that's really important to you and other strategies. If you want to lay out your plan for a quarter, for example, that's the longer technique to use. But here are five questions that you want to make sure to ask to avoid decision disasters on any everyday decision. First, what important information did I not yet fully consider? So what important evidence didn't you take into account? This is critical because we tend to look for information and believe information with which we're comfortable. We tend to look for information that the client will agree to the sale. We tend to ignore information that the client is not responding to our emails. <laughs> we don't think about that as information that's relevant. We just look at the earlier emails where the client was all happy and so on and nice about things. So we don't look for information that goes against our preferred options, our preferred choices. That is a big problem. You want to look twice as hard at information that goes against your preferred options, that goes against your preferred choices. So that's the important information. Now, you also want to not get stuck in analysis paralysis, meaning gathering too much information, and that's a cognitive bias called the information bias. So you want to decide what information is actually important. You know, the shoe size of your potential client might not be important information to gather for a sale, for example. Second, 
What dangerous judgment errors or cognitive biases did I not here address? You can take a look at Wikipedia. There's a list of cognitive biases, over 100 of them. It's quite thorough and it's good quality stuff. I know people who are writing the Wikipedia page on it. And of course, my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions to Avoid Business Disasters, goes for the 30 most dangerous judgment errors for businesses, for salespeople, and how to address them, addresses them. Third, what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? I already mentioned that with the optimism bias. You want someone who's a trusted and objective advisor, envision what they would tell you about the situation, about the sale, about whatever you're trying to work on, you know, when you're asking your boss for a raise. What would they tell you to do? You get about 50% of the benefit of this question but just by imagining this person because you take yourself outside of your perspective, outside of where you are, and you look at the situation from an outside external view. Now you get the other 50% of the benefit by asking this person, you know, call this person, or if you're a millennial, text this person, ask them what they suggest you do. Next, how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? How have you addressed all the ways this sale could fail or whatever project you're working on? Imagine that the sale completely failed, completely, utterly failed. Now think about all the reasons why it failed. Maybe you haven't addressed all the client's concerns. Maybe you missed some of the client's concerns that you actually could have taken a look at and thought about more deeply. So... Think about all the things that could have caused the sale to fail. Then see what you can address in advance. Maybe you can spend more time researching the client, getting important information, for example, or preparing your presentation more. The other aspect of things is some things you can't prepare for in advance. You can't solve them in advance, but you can make a plan, a contingency plan for what happens. So if your client asks for something that you don't expect as part of the sales package. Maybe you can make sure to clear some things with headquarters in advance for saying, you know, if a client asks for an extra 10% discount, can I give it to him on the spot or something like that? Finally, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? What new data would cause you to change your mind about this? We have a very hard time changing our minds when we are invested in something, when we're going ahead, we're excited about it, we're enthusiastic about it. It's incredibly hard for us to change our minds. But if you decide in advance that, hey, you know, this is a sign, this might be a sign that this is a super problem client and would actually cost us more money than the client would bring in if I make the sale, that might be a good decision-making point saying, you know, I want to stop the sale process and say goodbye to this client. Uh, and that's a great place to end our interview for today. Dr. Gleb Tversky, CEO of Disaster Avoidance Expert and talking about his new book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Gleb, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. Thanks so much for inviting me, David. It was a real pleasure. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. 